Welcome to Across the Pond, a Christian commentary on the way of Jesus in the world today with the co-founders of Red Letter Christians, Dr. Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne. Red Letter Christians gets its name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red, and we are aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. Some episodes of this podcast have been adapted from our radio show, Across the Pond, which airs on Sunday afternoons in the UK on Premier Radio. Thank you for listening. Let's jump into this week's episode with Shane Claiborne. Hey everybody, this is Shane Claiborne and the name of the show is Across the Pond. Thank you so much for joining me and I am always excited to have a guest. I've got a really special uh, friend and uh, wonderful leader from the United States over here, um, uh, my friend Adam Taylor, who is going to be our guest today, and he has done all kinds of stuff. He's worked for the World Bank Group. He's worked for World Vision. He was a fellow at the White House under Obama. Uh, He's been on the board of Red Letter Christians. He's been a part of Sojourners for years and years uh, and is now the president of Sojourners. And his new book is A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. So we're going to talk about that. But first, welcome, buddy. Good to be with you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, thanks, Shane. It's great to be with you too. And happy yeah, New Year. You, you too. Yeah, we're and we're recording this. Uh, it'll air, you know, at different times, but we're recording it uh, the day before the anniversary of the Capitol riot uh, and the insurrection on our Capitol building. So it feels like a very important conversation. And you know, I can't help but ignore Adam as I'm, you know, looking at your book sitting beside me here that the foreword was written by John Lewis, Representative John Lewis, you know, an icon in the in the movement for um, civil rights and so many other things here in the U.S. And also you write a lot about Desmond Tutu and Ubuntu. And so we'll talk about all that. But these guys have passed on now since you wrote the book. In fact, it must be right, right before uh, you published it that John Lewis wrote the foreword, huh? Yeah, it's extremely humbling that he agreed to write the forward and, and he literally kind of approved it just days, maybe weeks before he went on to glory. So mm. I didn't realize how sick he was when I made the request, but I was extremely grateful when he said yes. And, you know, my, when my publisher asked who did I want to write the forward, he was the first person that came to mind because in so many ways he embodies the beloved community. That was his lifelong pursuit, particularly in the context of defending the right to vote and, you know, really defending a love ethic and a justice ethic within our country. So that was uh, extremely meaningful. And the passing of Archbishop Desmond Tutu was also quite meaningful because a lot of my formation happened in South Africa. I had a chance to study in South Africa in 1996 and literally was, you know, was there just a few years after the end of apartheid. And I was there when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was being set up by Archbishop Mm. Tutu. And I remember being able to attend one of the hearings, and it was probably one of the most profound experiences I've had in my lifetime. And so, you know, I often quote Desmond Tutu when he describes the kind of Christian vocation as being a prisoner of hope. And I just I love that imagery and that that kind of um, reference. Prisoner of hope. And John Lewis, of course, coined the, the the phrase good trouble which i think That's is right. regular din, dinner table conversation for for you and me and the, the vision that i always love when he said when we do get arrested for the good trouble we can smile on our mug shots because we know that we're on the right side of history <laughs> <laughs> That's so, great. i love that yeah, too and 
And, um, you know, one of the ideas that you, you go into depth and in is, of course, Dr. King's vision of beloved community. But before we get there, you know, uh, Reverend uh, or uh, Archbishop Tutu talked about Ubuntu, right? That, that we belong together. And so unpack that a little bit, because I, I, you know, really encountered that in, when I was in South Africa as well. And of course, in, in uh, uh, Desmond Tutu's writing, but it seems like that's shaped some of your ideas, uh, both the beloved community and Ubuntu, right? No, absolutely. So, you know, well, we can get into this, but I, I unpack in the book what I call the Beatitudes of the beloved community. So these are the core commitments and markers of what the beloved community looks like. And you know, in many ways, the beloved community is just another way of describing God's reign, the kingdom of heaven, right? And so Ubuntu, to me, is a really powerful way to describe our interdependence. I, I sometimes describe it as the golden rule on steroids. Mm. And so it's this African philosophy that says, I am because we are, and that's quoting the words of Archbishop, just Archbishop Tutu. And in a deeper sense, it's this understanding that not only is our humanity tied together, our liberation is tied together. And, you know, it kind of builds on the prophet Isaiah's words in Isaiah 58, that it's only after we do the work of justice and compassion that our light will shine like a noonday and we will be restorers of the breach, repairs of uh, streets with dwellings. And so I really find that it's a, it's a powerful way to describe our mutuality. And certainly Dr. King understood this. He described how we are connected in a garment of inescapable mutuality. That's right. um, I learned a little bit of Zulu when I was studying in, in Cape Town. I've forgotten most of it, but right. there, were a, there was a greeting in Zulu that really got ingrained in my spirit. And it's, you know, the, the greeting basically means, how are you? But it's Salbona. But what it really means at a deeper level is I see you. So when I say Salbona, Shane, it says, I see you. I see the humanity in you. I see the God in you. Mm. And then the answer is Siakona, which means I am seen. And it's based in this understanding that until you fully see me and my humanity and my dignity, I can't be fully seen. And I, mm. I, again, I just think it's just a really beautiful way to understand how interconnected and interdependent our lives are. Oh, man. And it, I mean, it seems like the cry on the streets, too. You know, every time someone, you know, we're marching in the streets and uh, we hear say your say, say her name, Brianna Taylor, you know, say his name, Michael Brown. And, and it, to say that we see you No, you're no one's life is going to be crushed without an outcry in the streets. And, you know, there's a lot of different cultures that, that I think understand that better. When you were sharing about this, you know, that I see you, I was thinking when I was in India, there's a word namaste, you know, which I think a lot of people know from yoga, but <laughs> it's all, it's a really, really right. powerful, deep idea. Uh, you know, namaskar, namaste in, in, in India means the holy one in me honors the holy one in you. And you say it back and forth, similar to, you know, how you were saying in Zulu. So, you know, this, this idea that we're connected, it's also like, I mean, for folks that, you know, always want to go back to the Bible, which I love the Bible. I think we need to be constantly going back there. This is a, you know, the Hebrew says that we're to remember those who are in prison as if we were in prison with them, right? We're to remember those who are suffering as if we suffer with them. Uh, we're to welcome the stranger as if they were our own flesh and blood. So all this, like you said, the golden rule on steroids. And I think of our, you know, our mutual friend, Alexia Salvatier, I've heard her say that that passage um, where Paul writes about the body of Christ and one part suffers, we all su suffer. He, he then says the parts of the body that have held less honor 
are given special honor. And she calls that, uh, Alexia calls that God's affirmative action. <laughs> you know, but, it, but it also, you know, uh, it, it, it really is this, this um, movement for Black lives is an, is an affirmation of what hundreds of years of history has denied and subverted, right? So, you know, I think that's, that's one of the battles we kind of see in our, our country is, is, well, why would we give special uh, recognition of Black lives? Don't all lives matter? You know, and I think we've kind of moved on from that a little bit, but there, there you know, I, I'm looking at your, your image, which many people can't see, but behind you is the Black Lives Matter Plaza, you know, and it feels like we're really at a critical point in our country and in our history, and your book speaks to so much of this. So say a little bit more about this this moment that we're living in, uh, and, and, and you go into that in the book, but um, it doesn't it feel like we're at a kind of a crossroads and or some kind of reckoning in our country, right? Yeah, no question. So Dr. King's final book, which actually wrote from Jamaica and actually had a chance to write part of my book from Jamaica because my wife is from Jamaica. <laughs> so um, there's a little connection there, but his final book was called, where do we go from here? Chaos or community. Yeah. And I think one, you know, Dr. King was a prophet and that question is still extremely relevant for where we are today, but I do a little tweak, a little remix of Dr. King's title. And I think the most pressing question facing our country, but I also think this is, kind of a global challenge, including in countries like the UK, is where do we go from here? Either toxic polarization or the beloved community. And there's that entire chapter in my book that is focused on this notion of toxic polarization, not just a notion, but the reality of it. And the reason I use the word toxic and polarization together is that a lot of polling in the United States has showed that we have not been more divided as a country than since the height of the civil rights struggle and the kind of demise of the civil rights struggle in the late 1960s. And then in some ways we're even in a more perilous form of division because not only do the majority of Americans distrust and dislike people on the other political side, but they actually now have contempt toward people on the other side. They want to defeat them rather than to persuade them. And that is an extremely dangerous place to be. And then on, on top of that, you have a growing percentage of Americans that think that violence is a justifiable way to pursue their political aims. And certainly that showed up on January 6th in a very horrific way. And so, you know, I think we are at this really important inflection moment. And part of the reason we're so polarized is because of, you know, the summer of 2020, where we had what I described less as a reckoning, because for me, a reckoning means you've actually made some repair and some changes. And I don't think we've gotten quite there yet. We did have a partial awakening where a lot of people's eyes were opened to the brutality of policing, of racialized policing in this country, particularly after the horrific murder of George Floyd, but also Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and others. And what's challenging though, is that that awakening was relatively fleeting and was mm -hmm. fairly shallow within the white Christian church in the United States, speaking broadly, particularly within the white ev evangelical church, polling from PRI and Pew and others shows that there really wasn't much of a shift in understanding of policing or a shift of opinion about there being a real crisis in policing among white evangelicals, even after all that we saw in the summer of 2020. And so I think one of the challenges we face, and this is one of the things I try to do in the book, 
is really help people understand that we cannot escape our history and that we've got to reckon with the good, the bad, and the ugly of American history because that continues to show up in the present. And we can't have a shared vision of where we're going unless we know where we've been. So yeah, part right. of the book is that kind of reckoning with our history. But then it's really trying to cast a moral vision for where we can and should be going as a country that is rooted in our deepest religious values and our deepest civic values. And, and what's beautiful, I think, about America, but also about many other countries as well, is enshrined in our Constitution is this commitment to liberty and justice for all. Now, of course, that's been compromised and corrupted since the very inception of the nation. But we shouldn't, you know, not try to protect and cherish that really amazing, beautiful ideal, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, Let's yeah. actually try to make it real. <laughs> Let's yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, right. you know, create it, make, make it real for, for all Americans. And so, you know, part of the book is really trying to cast that unifying vision, which I think could be an anecdote to some of these forces that are polarizing us in very toxic ways. Um, you know, one of the things that I explore in the book, I, I learned a lot about cognitive science, actually, not an expert in this, but, you know, I've become much more well-read. And what I've learned is that there are so many ways in which our brains are hardwired for division. It's kind of the flight and, uh, fight and flight response. It is thinking about things in overly binary ways. It's often presuming or assuming that people have much more negative opinions toward you than they actually do. There's a whole series, and I won't, I, you know, I won't get into all of the, the details about it, but while that's true, we're also hardwired for belonging and for community. I think that is ingrained in the soul of humanity. Mm. And so we've got these competing forces. And I think we have to decide which one are we going to, to feed? Which one are we going to, to, to water and to sustain? And my book is really trying to show how to feed and sustain that which builds beloved community rather than that which leads to crippling and toxic polarization. Yeah, dude, that's great. So uh, let me just pause and say thank you. Thank you all for listening in. Uh, the, the, I'm Shane Claiborne and the show's Across the Pond. I'm talking with my friend and my brother, Adam Taylor, uh, who's now the president of Sojourners and uh, has released this wonderful book, A More Perfect Union. Um, so I want to get to the good news and, you know, get back to that. But I, I, something you said struck me, which is this polarization that we see in our country, but also, you know, in different manifestations all around the world. Um, I was talking to this dude in Texas uh, that had studied history a little bit more than me, Adam, and um, he said, I really don't think that, and this is actually before Trump was elected, he said, I don't think that the country is going to be able to hold together the union. And I said, and I immediately thought, you know, are you saying you think there's going to be another civil war? And he said, no, I think that probably if I, he said, I, I wouldn't be so pretentious to say I can predict history, but he said, just looking at my studies, like I would say that there will be states that try to secede, right? That, that cannot hold the, the unity of the federal government um, and some of the policies and things on abortion, different things. Um, but it, but uh, <laughs> this was like, I don't know, five or six years ago, you know, and I, I, I love unity, uh, you know, and I want I want us to be able to see that. But what do you think about that idea? I mean, do you think that um, I mean, God's big, right? <laughs> but these divisions, like you said, Thankfully, praise are, Lord. Yes. Are, are historic 
And I mean, it's only last year, Adam, that in Tennessee, we were able to remove the Nathan Bedford statue, Nathan Bedford Forrest, the founder of the KKK. I mean, these should be no brainers, right? (laughs) But that's where we find ourselves, right? Yeah, no question. I mean, I I think it's a reminder of just how deep seated so many of these sins and vices are within our history and within us. And I think that is something that we haven't fully confronted and, and been able to heal from. We, you know, we are a country that has experienced a great deal of trauma, not just those who've been enslaved or those who've been exterminated, the native population, but that trauma has also affected our white brothers and sisters as well. And it's kind of warped and imprisoned some of their own identity and their own sense of, of themselves. And so, you know, I, I do think we have to have a pretty kind of sober diagnosis of where we are. That being said, you know, I really believe in a God that can make all things new. And I think that's true of our country as well. And we've had some real opportunities and there've been moments where we've seen that kind of transformation. Um, You know, our, our mutual friend, Reverend Barber describes these kind of moments of reconstruction within the country. And, you know, certainly the first reconstruction was a moment where we could have pivoted and turned in a very different direction. And we know that that was ultimately ended because of a political compromise by President Hayes and Northern troops were pulled out of the South and we went in a very different trajectory. We also had another moment in the civil rights movement where major change happened because of the struggle of the civil rights movement itself, the victories of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and 1965 Voting Rights Act. But then there was a backlash that you know, help to propel the war on crime and the Southern strategy and a whole series of things that we're still kind of dealing with today. So, so all that to say is I, I do think that there's this kind of push and pull in history. And we're now at a moment where there's been a real kind of backlash and a real yeah. retrenchment, but that is just the moment where I think transformation can happen. And it doesn't yeah. happen inevitably. It requires our sacrifice and our passion. I'm actually writing a, an op-ed that I hope will will come out just around the Dr. King holiday, which is just in about a week and a half here in the United States. And I've been really reflecting on King's letter uh, that he wrote it from the Birmingham jail. Mm-hmm. And in it, as you know, Shane, he really has pretty choice words for the white moderate. You know, he really identifies the white moderate as the biggest barrier to progress. And, you know, I'm saying this out of a spirit of love, but I actually feel that we're in a similar situation today. That yes, there are those that continue to harbor white supremacist ideology and that are using violence to try to overturn elections, you know, January 6th being a prime example of that. But I think one of the bigger challenges is the kind of silence and complicity of many white moderates, not all, who are deeply concerned about what's happening in the country and we're deeply concerned about Trumpism and, and, and its appeals to racism and to xenophobia and to sexism, but often didn't want to speak out against it out of fear of dividing their church or losing their church or you know, creating controversy. And the challenge is, and I think this is kind of building on the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, silence is actually a form of speech in a sense. To, mm-hmm. to, act, to not to act is actually to act because you're essentially propping up the status quo, or you're enabling forces that are out, you know, trying to undermine 
our democracy and, and, yeah. and the health of our democracy. So I really think this is a, a moment where we have to find ways to come alongside and inspire and support many of those more moderate voices that really could declare and, and, and communicate effectively that no, in fact, the last election was not stolen. There's no evidence it was stolen. So let's stop promulgating this lie that is literally delegitimizing our democracy and is yeah. fueling a great deal of the conflict that we see in our midst. Man, I tell you what, though, it's so exhausting to be uh, argued or, or, or to be like the, the bars feel so low sometimes. Right. Like back to the Nathan Bedford Forrest thing. Right. Like we're 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 literally um, trying to to just say this election wasn't stolen, you know, or, <laughs> or you're going like, actually we're old enough to remember January 6, 2021, right? Like people were killed. Right, right. Like this wasn't a little protest. Right. Um, but I, you know, I, I think of, um, I think it was Kirsten Powers I was talking to and she said, this is unique that, that a, a startling number of people, both on the uh, Democrat side and the Republican side, not only disagree with the other side, they think they're evil and they think that yeah. the world would be better off without them. Like this was right. literally a study that she, you know, cites in her book. And boy, I mean, obviously we, we need to, the spirit of God. Um, I also feel like it's why a lot of people tap out, you know, like they go, man, we are not we're not going to find a solution in politics and you're one that keeps leaning in. So I'm asking you, you know, you know, the studies are showing that young people have the, you know, the, the hope in political solutions has tanked and yet the same people keep getting reelected over and over. And so there's this sort of nihilism that, I mean, where, where do you see some of the seeds of change happening um, I see it happening in the streets, but I mean, there might be some sprouts that we see within that. And that's where I'm looking to you, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me start with just how revolutionary the love ethic of Jesus is. Yeah. And I think, you know, the commitment to refuse to hate our enemies and to love our enemies would be yeah. such a, is such a powerful force. It's not easy. But I think, you know, that in itself could be a kind of balm within our politics. <laughs> if, yeah. You know, those of us who are kind of in the political realm, whether it's we're trying to influence it or whether we're actually elected officials, really embrace that ethic. That would be powerful in itself. Mm. I, I do think that, you know, while there's many reasons to be cynical and disillusioned about our politics, in some ways, you know, politics is not a spectator sport. And the more that you spectate, the more you give license to things to happen that you disagree with or that ultimately, you know, could cause a great deal of harm to people that you care about or to your own community. And so, you know, while, you know, certainly I have my frustrations with the state of our politics today, I think it's essential that not only do we change the incentives and the rules of our political system, including by getting rid of, rid of so many gerrymandered districts, including by ending partisan primaries, you know, just I'll give you one, one stat really quickly. Over 80% of congressional seats were decided in the primary, and only 10% of the electorate voted in the primary. So that means basically 10% of the population determined 80% of who's in Congress. And you can imagine who those 10% are. They tend to be the more strident, the more extreme in many cases. And so it's 
So in some ways, politicians are just responding to the incentives yeah. that are baked into the system. So was, yes, we I need was, to like- I was seeing this that. study that showed that the number of gun enthusiasts and gun extremists right. uh, that have contacted their legislators is like twice as much as the folks that are either more moderate or concerned about gun violence. So yeah, that's a really solid point. In fact, it was astronomical. Like when you said, how many of you have actually interacted with one of your senators, the, the folks that really love the guns, um, it was over the top. And the folks that are concerned was like, man, maybe a few of us have, you know, right. but hey, we just got a couple minutes. We should do this again sometime. It's great. But I want to ask you one, one last thing, which is that, you know, as you think about the beloved community, or you, you kind of mentioned, you know, the, the idea of the dream of God, the reign of God coming on earth, it feels like there, there can be a blurring between America and the church, right? Like where, where, when we talk about the beloved community, how do we envision the intersection of uh, the, the, you know, transnational body of Christ in America, because there's certainly many people that think America is the city on the hill. You know, this is, uh, if we fulfill our vocation, we are the messianic hope for the world. So maybe unpack that in the last minute or so. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. So there's, there's a chapter in the book that's focused on unmasking the myths that have so much shaped America. So the myth that we're a chosen nation, that we're a Christian nation, that we're an innocent nation. And so I think, I think part of building the beloved community is really being more conscious of those myths, but also overcoming them in some ways. I just want to quickly define what the beloved community means in, in my own remix definition. So building on Dr. King and others, the, the beloved community is where we build a society where neither punishment nor privilege is tied to race, ethnicity, sexuality, gender, ableness, et cetera. And it's building a society where everyone is seen, everyone is valued, everyone is able to thrive. And I think that, you know, is a big enough definition that it would resonate with the vast, vast majority of Americans and hopefully the vast, vast majority of people in the UK and other parts of the world. And so I think we need to lean into that kind of definition because it's both measurable and it's very aspirational. And it yeah. ties again into our religious values as well as our civic ones. So good. Well, good heavens. This this half hour flew by, my brother, and I, I'm grateful for you, grateful for your book. You've been listening to Adam Taylor, everybody. Uh, his new book is A More Perfect Union. So check it out. And he's a big part of Red Letter Christians. I'm a big part of Sojourners. So go to our websites, follow us, and let's seek first the kingdom of God, that beloved community that uh, God envisioned for the world. And uh, hallelujah. Thank you, brother, for the conversation. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about Red Letter Christians, please visit redletterchristians.org for resources, upcoming events, and to connect with other people who are passionate about Jesus and justice. You can follow Shane Cleborn and Red Letter Christians on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you'd like to support our work with a one-time gift or by becoming a monthly sustainer of the movement, please visit our website and click on the red donate button. Thank you for tuning in.